Hey everyone, welcome to the Film and Games Podcast. My name is Jennifer Javornik, and I am here today meeting people at the Social Impact Summit in Los Angeles. We are coming to a close on the conference. It's been absolutely amazing. The energy at this conference and people's passions to do good in the world has been electrifying. And I couldn't be more excited about who we are talking to today. We just happened to meet at a dinner last night and sat next to each other. So I know what you're all in store for, and it's good. So without further ado, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Jennifer. Rob Richardson, I am the CEO of Disrupt Art, as well as the founder of Disruption Now Media, which we we host a podcast that focuses on empowerment, social impact, and what we like to say, disrupting common narratives and constructs, which I will get more into. Oh, yes. Uh, And we also uh, have a conference ourselves, Midwest Kind. We like to say we're building the South by Southwest of the Midwest. That's awesome. Um, I wish you guys could have been there last night because uh, at this event, which was sponsored by Comcast and NBC, and they had basically pulled together all the attendees that are involved in media and entertainment and um, Rob was the first one who was given the microphone to introduce himself. And he made sure people knew he was from the Midwest and that uh, Midwest is best, as we all know. So then I went after him and, of course, of course, mentioned I was from the Midwest. And like all night when people are introducing themselves, they kept being like, well, I live in LA, but I went to college <coughs> in Iowa or like my mother lives in Indiana. And like suddenly for some reason, Midwest. Midwest was the running topic last night. Yeah. It kind of became the cool place to be. And everyone else was like, Oh, I'm from LA. How boring, <laughs> how basic. Um, but anyway, it's so good to talk to you again. Um, so let's just start simple. I know I've heard a lot of this, but I want to hear it again. Sure. Um, you are a Renaissance man involved in many things. Tell me about everything you're involved with and what you're trying to do. Yeah, I think the best way to understand what I'm trying to do is to understand where I've come from. Uh, so I've been extremely fortunate. I have great parents. I had a great support system. Uh, I say all that as a as a, as a, as a, as a way to open up here, because when, when, it, when, it, when everyone talks about, when people talk about struggles, particularly when you hear from, uh, diverse communities, sometimes it's a, it's a poverty story. That's not what I'm gonna tell here, but I will say that I did have some struggles. So I, I, I was diagnosed with what I call a learning difference, not a learning disability, ADHD. And so I, I wasn't a natural like person that, got school immediately. I actually struggled quite a bit from about the second grade through the eighth grade. Uh, but again, going back to that strong support system, uh, my, uh, my parents encouraged me. So the light bulb went off eventually. And at the end of the eighth grade, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. I had a conversation with my uh, teacher and told her all of my, uh, Jennifer, all of my j- dreams and aspirations, all, all the things I wanted to do, how, how I was going to go to college, that I was going to do this and that. And she basically told me, she looked at me straight in my eyes, right? Just like we're talking right now and said, look, Rob, college is not meant for everybody. Oof. Right. And like, like, that's like a dagger. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then she just said, like, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but like, that's not something you're going to be able to do. So you need to really think realistically about what you want to do. Oof. Right? And I'm like literally crying here. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you were that teacher, 
uh, Rob's teacher in the eighth grade. Um, I hope I hope you're learning from this. <laughs> I hope so too. But I I went back and had a conversation with my parents, and my mother's words still ring true with me today. She said, "Look, Rob, don't allow yourself to be defined by anyone's low or narrow expectations of you. You define yourself for yourself by yourself." And so. I like this woman. Yeah, I love my mother. She's great. But all of that has been a source of inspiration for me. So everything that I've done in my life. So I went on to get my degree in electrical engineering, went on to get a degree in law, uh, got a chance to become chairman of the board, uh, the youngest chairman of the board of the University of Cincinnati and lead the university. Uh, so I was able to achieve some, some things that I'm proud of. But I know there's a lot of people that d- didn't necessarily have the infrastructure and support that I had. Uh, you know, that may be a woman that may be black, that may be, that may become from circumstances that where people think that they're limited by their past or their current circumstances. So my goal in life is to disrupt those common narratives and constructs. That's why a lot of things you see about our company is about disruption, but it's disrupting to empower. And so a lot of things, everything that I've done in my life has been about that. So previously I was, I was very focused on education that I ran for public office, hmm. uh, how did you do? Yeah, I, I mean, I did. I did. I didn't win, but I did well. So let yes. me tell you, right. Let me. Uh, I actually ran for mayor for my first office. Oh, cool! And I'm actually quite confident I would have won had I not waited so late. I got into a primary and really overestimated how how many people actually knew me because I was again I was a public figure. I did a lot. I had a radio show, but they didn't know me necessarily in politics. And then it took a while for people to to. And I had a radio show, but people. And it took a while for people to reconcile who I was and have enough name recognition to go against two people that had a lot of name recognition, right? And and I, it was only a few months process too, because the primary was only like four months. Okay. Which really gave people two months. Right. And then, <clears throat> but, you know, got like 30, close to 30% of the vote, which was good, right? Uh, and then I ran for another position because I got recruited to run for a position that I was interested in too. It was a statewide office for treasurer in the state of Ohio. Uh, this is when we thought Ohio was a swing state. And so good news is I thought I needed 1.8 million votes to win. Uh, I received over 2 million votes, right? Third most, yeah, third most in history. My opponent got the second most in history. Ah. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so after that, I, I, I did a pivot to figure out, well, what is it that I want to do? I don't want to just go back to having, being an attorney, just having a regular job. I want to do something that is getting my voice out. So I did start a pod, I started the podcast. That's when we started the podcast. Uh, and then the pandemic hit, and I really wanted to figure out a way to have a greater impact. And that's where uh, we got involved with technology and really Web3. Let's see Web3 as an opportunity for, uh, more, to build, for more people to build because it's a new, like, almost reset, and, and it's this new technology that's emerging. And I wanted to make sure that uh, I created a platform, and that's what Disrupt Art was about. Okay, let's start there. We'll come back to the other initiatives, but let's just dig into that. So tell me um, about Disrupt Art, what your mission is and what you're doing there. Yeah, so Disrupt Art, the overall mission is really about using the power of Web3 to help make sure that creatives uh, get access to this technology and that they own and can profit off of the uh, off of their creative enterprise. I'm sure there are listeners on our podcast today who aren't as familiar with sure. Web3. So could you give us a really simple description of what it is? 
that's always the million dollar question. What's the simple description of Web3? Let me break down two things. I think I have to break down what blockchain is first. Do it. And then I'll break down what NFTs are because that's a, that, that's a function of what we do. So easiest way to describe blockchain, you know, blockchain is, everyone knows how Google Docs works, I'm assuming. The basic way to describe blockchain is it's Google Docs without Google. Everybody has access to the information, but no one entity controls all the data. Everybody can see it and nobody can necessarily manipulate other people's data, but they can see it. Right. So it's a way that when we talk about being decentralized, all of your data is not housed and owned by one person, one entity, one corporation. So it so that it's much harder for someone to try to go in and hack that unless you give them access to your direct keys. Right. Unless you give them access by giving them your information. But right now, if we you have a bank and, and the bank is stored all in one place, it's easy to attack one place and figure out how to get in, which you've seen these data breaches. What you have not seen, people talk about blockchain as if people are being hacked all the time. It's not true. People actually let people in. People have no one has hacked the blockchain yet. That's, Got a, it. that's a significant statement. Yep. Right. No one has hacked the blockchain because what you have to do is, again, get access to not one place. But essentially, 10,000 computers all at the same time. It's probably possible, but it just no one's figured out how to hack it yet. So it's the AI. The, well, don't worry. <laughs> Give it two more weeks. Give it two more weeks, right? <laughs> and that's and, and and that's also a reason. I'm gonna divert for one second to get back to this. That's also a reason why blockchain is going to be so important in a world where everything is artificial, where you and I can pretend that we were at this conference and come up with a really realistic photo. How do you know what's real and what's not? Blockchain verifies things as they happen, and you'll know what's real, what's produced by this artist, so on and so forth, what's produced by this person. You won't know that without some type of verification, or we have to depend upon Google and others to tell us, yes, believe us, even though we can't see your data. So that's, that's why this technology is so important. You know, trust and verification and, and really collective ownership for us. Okay. That was a great definition. Thank Good. you. Good. I'm glad. I, I hope that helps somebody out there to understand. Now, NFTs, the simplest definition of NFTs is a digital fingerprint. That's what it is. So it, it's a before NFTs, if you are if you are a photographer, okay, you put something up on the Internet. There was no way to verify that it came from you. Maybe have a watermark, but generally people can find ways around that. There's no way for you to, quote unquote, create exclusivity. Why? Because anybody can copy it and reproduce it. But now this provides a digital fingerprint. So you may have something that looks like you may have digital, you may have twins, but they each have, I think they have unique fingerprints. Everybody's unique. It is unique. So you're able to see when something happened, how it happened and the history of, of where it happened. That's never happened before. Right. So we're now able to create essentially a digital identity that helps us in the physical world as well. And if people are thinking right now, well, I don't understand this stuff. Digital fingerprint, I think, is a pretty good explanation, but when people can't understand it beyond that, it's because they don't understand digital ownership, right? And as we talk about gaming, and this is a, this is a podcast about gaming, kids understand digital ownership completely. Sure. They're right. They've been, they've been trained on Roblox and trading within Roblox and having ownership of that, though Roblox owns all of the data. You can't, there's no value outside of Roblox right. in the very near future. When you trade 
things on Fortnite, or if you change, you think change like it's called V Bucks. I think on Fortnite, right? You can literally the things that you create, you can you can say I created that, and you can sell that and get royalties for that. But it's not owned by Fortnite or Roblox. It's uh, it's it's literally it will be owned by you. You will you will have the data out there, and that person will be able to get every time it sells their design. Right. right. They'll be able to get a piece. I do think that's the best the, for people who don't understand the space. That's a really easy example is art. So yep. we understand the fact that there is an original of the Mona Lisa. There's only one. Millions of people have taken a picture of the Mona Lisa. Yes. But the Mona Lisa is there's just one. It's unique. Correct. There's people who know how to tell that if it's uh, authentic or a forgery. Correct. So NFT is doing that for digital assets. And physical it can do that, right? Because you'll be able to know, like you can literally, you will be able to know. So think True. of it this way, okay? Let me back up. NFTs essentially have value for a few reasons. You name one, something that's extremely rare, okay? But let's say we want to, how do we really know things are verified that, that the Mona Lisa is the Mona Lisa? We have to go through some agency that tells us this is what it is. In the very near future, literally, we probably, be, not probably, we can do this now. We can have a chip aligned with it on the blockchain. Boom. We know, verified, this is when it, this is when it created. This is who it is, and everybody can see it. Yep. So we don't, there's no behind-the-scenes black uh, box process where we have to trust some authority. Everybody can see, because they'll see it on the blockchain, when it happened, who owned it. That's what we call provenance. Yep. And, and every time, every time it, it exchanges, like you can, there will be a, ch- a time where people have to just actually... Get it on the blockchain, somebody exchanges it, right? Because they won't recognize it unless otherwise. And then they'll be able to see, oh, this is how I know it's official because the ledger is telling me here, 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 this person owned it, this person owned it. And you'll be able to see that, right? Yep. So we're talking about ownership and an easier way to keep track of ownership in a way that's you can verify and everybody can see. Yep. That's a great explanation. I'm going to add one more definition. Yes. I, I'm, we're going to try not to go on a tangent about yes, it because yes. it's not about, but while we're at it. Give me the simple definition of crypto. Oh, give you the simple definition of crypto. The simple definition of crypto is actually understanding what money is. So I'm sorry I'm not going to give you a simple definition, but I'm going to, I think, explain it to a way that people that make sense. Sounds great. Okay. So money was created, as we know, I think in Sumeria sometime in like 3000 BC. I could be off, right? The first recording of money was barley being traded, okay, that we know of. It could have been before that. But money didn't really have its real value until it had no intrinsic value, okay? Religion asked us to believe in something. Money asked us to, uh, for, other, for us to believe that others believe, believe in something. It's the most trans, I think money is the most transformative thing ever created in human history, because it allows us to, it, it transcends religion. It transcends language. You don't have to understand language. You understand money, though. <clears throat> you understand it. And it's back because it's trust. The simple thing is you believe that a dollar is valuable because you trust that the United States and the system is going to work. All right. Fair. That is, that is the inherent, that's how money works. The most important thing for us to have is trust in the future for money to work and for our system to work. Credit, all that stuff. All right. Now. The theory behind, particularly when Bitcoin started, the first digital coin, was that, okay, banking systems shouldn't be able to make things up, 
right? And so you know the exact amount of what's due. It's just digital currency, and why? And it's but what it is really, it's really just data, because that's all money is. The reason why you know something is valued is nothing more than transactions. Most of how we do business now, you don't. You're not sitting there with cash, uh, piles of cash, are you? No. Well, maybe you are. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> right? Maybe someone listening to us has two hundred thousand dollars under your bed. Hopefully, you don't. I would. I would advise against that. And if you do, where do you live? <laughs> right. <laughs> you better not tell anybody. But what we do now is that we know everything's a ledger in a transaction. That's how money works right now. Digital currency just does that. It just That's what Bitcoin says. It says, okay, this is how much we're going to have, and that's it, and everybody can see it. So NFTs are different because what those are, are those are, those are not what we call fungible, and I'm sorry I'm making things complicated, but all, all that means is that we can trade dollars for dollars and things like that, right? And so, like, let me back up here. It's nothing more than just how keeping track of data, and that's all money is. It's a ledger. And so Bitcoin started to say we're going to have a certain amount, <clears throat> and everybody knows. And the first time Bitcoin started, it got, when people created values because they actually, it was, this was, I think, about 13 years ago, they had a pizza party, and someone sold, like, I, I don't know if it was 10000 worth of Bitcoins to buy some pizzas. I, I'm sure he wishes he had that back now. But he kind of started the understanding of, just like they did with Barley, that values created here. And then people recognize the value because it's valuable because people recognize it's valuable. That's the only reason why money is valuable, too. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin, despite all the ups and downs, I wouldn't say it's a currency, but it is an asset that can be valuable. And so if you need to be able to exchange money and you don't have banking, which is almost more than half the world does not have banking. So you're able to use crypto in a way that you couldn't with banking. We couldn't do business with folks in Nigeria and everything so easily because banking laws make that hard. Crypto makes it instant. I'll give one quick example to show you how the power can work. During the Ukraine uh, war, uh, people wanted to raise money online. And so folks raised money the traditional way. It probably took 30 or 40 days easy to send large amounts of money to uh, Ukraine. All the complications with banking laws, international with crypto, it took them less than a day to send like $30 million. So what all people need to understand with, 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 with digital assets, it, it allows money to transfer faster. That's it. The simplest definition is it allows commerce to move without the complications. That's the simple definition. But I wanted people to understand the backstory. The simple definition is it gets money from A to Z quicker than you can with banking. That was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now let's tie it into what you're actually doing with yes. Disrupt Art. Yes. So, so Disrupt Art, we're doing several things. So one, uh, we're launching art hackathons really across the country. And our goal here is to empower creators uh, to understand the power of this technology and make it as accessible as possible. So the problem with the space, and I say when I say the space, I'm talking Web3, blockchain, however we're defining this. And by the way, my definition of Web3 is anything that uses blockchain technology. Okay, Thank so you. just so we know what Web3 is. So the problem with Web3 applications is that they're built for people that understand Web3. Sure. Which is like hardly anybody, 
right? No one really understands. Everyone this. listening to this podcast now, yeah, count them. Yeah, they'll understand now. You, you're gonna you're gonna be uh, experts more than probably ninety nine percent of anybody else for those listening. So that's a problem though, because we want to make it so it's built for people that understand how the current Web two works. And, and I'm sorry, I'm giving people more. Let me break down what I mean by Web two and Web three. I've told you Web three, right? Web one was the first time we put out the internet. We can just see the visual internet. That's what they mean, right? When we first started, it was just kind of like a read only. Yep. Web two is where we are. So web two has helped us make, has matured the web so we all can use it. It's, it was the start of social media. It was the start of the, of, of the Airbnb applications like that, which is all actually still relatively new. It doesn't feel new, but it is, right? All of the, all, that's what web two is. The, the power is that we were able to easily, we disrupted how we communicate, right? Social media. We disrupted how we travel, uh, Airbnb. We, dis- we disrupted how we uh, get around in vehicles, uh, Uber and Lyft, right? So those things happened because we were able to uh, connect. But all of that was centralized, which means that, okay, Google, Apple, uh, Airbnb, they all control the data. They all own the data, we create the data, they own it. Web3 means we own the data, which is the next evolution of this, right? Where you get a chance to actually own your data versus it being housed by central folks. That's another way to think about this. Okay, so I was focused on uh, Web3 and how we make it easy and accessible. Right now, in order to, if you wanted to support your favorite artists or you wanted to, Get involved with Web3 Gaming. Web3 Gaming is really big. Uh, it's still very difficult, one. Two, people, again, design it for Web3. The focus is not on making a fun game. It's, it's The focus is on how do we make it so we can make as much money quickly with Web3, and that's not going to be sustainable. So what we, what, what we do is make the process engaging, entertaining, and easy. So Tell me more. All right. So if you want to get a digital, we like to call them digital collectibles too, because NFTs sound too intimidating, right? So if you want to collect a digital collectible, or we are hosting of like at, at events people have already, if you went to your favorite music festival and you have, let's say, a, a brand that want, that is advertising for brand awareness and things like that, we would, we would uh, as a part of that experience, create like a digital scavenger hunt, for example, Okay. Right. And then you would collect a certain amount of these digital collectibles and you don't have to do anything but have an email and you hit enter and you can have a you have a digital wallet and you're sorry, you can have a digital collectible. Yeah. You won't have to go through trying to figure out how to upload a wallet or any of that. Right. You can do that later if you decide to transfer it. But we want the process to be easy and engaging and fun. At the Got front, it. Right. So, because for most digital collectibles, you right. need a wallet. Yes, you need a wallet. You need to remember your C phrases, all types of things people that you can do. And there are reasons why that can be, that can be a good thing. But before we get to any of the benefits... Right. If you're at a music concert doing a digital scavenger hunt, you're right. not like, let me take 20 minutes to figure out how exactly. to create a wallet. Exactly. No one wants to do that. Nope. Right. So you got to make it entertaining and engaging first. So our goal is to make it easy for the creators, the people that are making the art, making the assets for them to participate, for the brands and the consumers, for them to be able to participate and make it essentially a one-click process. That's basically what we do. Uh, And we think it's very important for 
uh, creators and, and, and brands and nonprofits to get into the space and do it and make it easy for them. Uh, and then we can take them down the rabbit hole as far as they want to go. But first, it has to be easy. So everything we do is user-facing. It's, a, it's an experience that they're used to. So let's take your company. If you wanted to do some digital collectibles, we would just literally create a platform that's with your website. You wouldn't have to go to anything else. Some people would just go and they would just be able to collect from your website. That's it. And, have, and then they would be able to do things that would give them access. So the next question we always get is, well, how would I use this? Why does this matter? We talked about the reasons why digital collectibles, aka NFTs, are valuable. One was is something that's extremely rare. Yep. Number two, it can be the it can be uh, historic, the first of its kind, right? So if you're at the you're at the first, I don't know, uh, Taylor Swift concert that actually she says I'm going to have a two thousand digital collectibles that you're going to collect here, and those and those folks will be the first to ever collect this, and they'll be, that that will be historic in itself because. Taylor Swift was there. Think of uh, uh, if you were at a historic event in time, my grandmother went to the March on Washington, right? And she had, a, I think, a pin that we have from that. But imagine if she was able to take an NFT that can only happen there and verify it. That would be a pretty valuable thing for people to have, to be at, to be at, that, point, at, that, at that point in time, to be able to have a, a collectible, something they can say, they can preserve that they were there, that they had a memory there, that they, they can prove they were there. I think that would be valuable, right? Uh, another, so is it the rarity of it or the location of it or all of the above? It could be all of the above. And then the, 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 the major reason, though, is what we like to call utility, real-world value that's connected to it. So let's go back. So, again, it could be multiple of these things. But let's go back to the Taylor Swift example, right? Let's say she says the first 1,000 Taylor Swift fans. I don't know if she has a way that she talks about her fans like Beyonce does, what she calls them, the beehive. I think they're Swifties. Swifties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. See. You guys can fact check us. Yeah. So clearly, I don't don't know enough about Taylor Swift. So, but she's amazing. I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just saying I just don't know much about her. So, Swifties. Let's say she creates, she said the first, this is going to be Genesis 1 Swifties, and everybody here will get uh, exclusive drops of music that no one else can get. Uh, everyone else, I'll, 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 I'll get a chance. You get a chance to do behind the scenes meet with me. Could be virtual. Some could be in person. Uh, you'll get first access to uh, to backstage passes. Uh, you'll get first access to my upcoming movies and things like that. That would be a very valuable club to be in. I'm going to challenge you. <laughs> Go ahead. Which is, so a lot of people listening on our podcast are people in the Games for Change community, sure. people who care about games for positive impact, sure. um, games for education. Yes. So I know there's there's people experimenting with Web3 in those Absolutely. fields. Can you kind of give us an example about how uh, if you're an indie and you're creating an educational game, how you might want to use this technology? If you're a, if you're an indie and you're making so, let me let me throw this question back on you now. Sure. How do you go about creating impact right now with the game? Well, what the the content of the game usually is what's making the impact. So we're okay. looking for, well, what is the goal or outcome I'm trying to achieve? Okay. So after playing this game, I want the player to know, to be, to feel. To we want the person to be transformed, okay. and then so then we measure 
you know, based on where they were before and after the game, how that, if that impact has achieved. Okay. The way we do it is when we identify the learning objectives or the outcomes that we're seeking, we're trying to kind of isolate what is the behavior, like is it to analyze, to deconstruct, to fuse, and we create digital representation of those in the games that essentially become the game mechanics. So what you do in the game is what we're trying to teach you to do in the real world. And we kind of, um, we, we measure ourselves or we hold the cells accountable that there is that transformation at the end of the game. Understood. Okay, that helps. So what I would say is you would look to, the greatest opportunity within Web3 is for the, uh, it could be for the company, it could be for the uh, uh, nonprofit, is to really figure out ways to co-build with your community. So not, so not as, you, don't, you shouldn't think of this as a new marketing tactic. I mean, you can say that it is, <clears throat> but the greatest opportunity is how do I now create an opportunity to co-build with my community? So I'll give you some examples. Let's say you had a game that was teaching people how to be the most effective film creative or film creator. And you were making some type of interactive game to teach people how to launch their own type of film. Okay. Right. <clears throat> you could do something to where you, you give them like people that end up completing the course, then they get a chance to be a part of a, some type of a digital collectible Right. And you and, and you say, OK, people that are in this will then get a chance to uh, help us come up with the design concepts for what our movie could be. And you could have partial ownership in that. You could be you could get a chance to help us uh, develop and make characters within that movie. Right. And so like and then those characters will then have some value that you then will get a chance to share in the opportunities in the royalties if 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 something happens with it if nothing may ever happen with it sure you just get great experience and 99 percent of the time nothing may ever happen except you've created this great asset this great storyline these great characters but you know five or ten percent of the time someone comes up with the next squid games (laughs) right and then suddenly you have actually some assets where they get to keep some ownership uh, of, of the characters or the story that they created. Oh, that's so cool. Right. So your goal is to think about how can you do that? How do you do that in, in the areas that you're focused on? Tell me about one, a project that you've done that you think is a really interesting application of this technology. Yeah. So one project that we're finishing is we're working with a nonprofit called All-Star Code. And they focus on helping uh, Black and Latino males get into technology. And they have... Uh, a summer boot camp and intensive programming to help uh, put people in the right track and, and guide them there. So what we're doing is it's their 10 year anniversary. And as part of their 10 year anniversary for all-star code, they're having the kids actually come up with some designs and competitions for uh, their artwork. And those are going to be, uh, those are going to be submitted and, and, and folks giving to the uh, nonprofit can actually own some of their art and help support that way. So it's just kind of like gamifying the uh, uh, donor relations. I love that. Yes. And a great way to kind of give these young people kind of a credential. Exactly. To hang their hat on um, as they kind of, as their career starts to take, take shape. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Exactly. Uh, So another one we're hoping we're doing one, hopefully with uh, Procter and Gamble, they have a, um, 
they, they host activations all across the country and they do a lot, particularly with, uh, black culture and Latino culture. And they have, they have host a lot of events. One thing that we are doing is a digital scavenger hunt that we're working on that that's coming up, as I told you about where you would, you can get a limited, uh, digital collectible that is as part of this experience with the Cincinnati music festival, it'll be celebrating music icons and surprise icons that you can get and collect will come. And then those who collect all, a few will get a chance to like get behind the scenes, pay uh, backstage passes or things in the future. And and then they'll get other things from the brands like, you know, discounts and stuff like that. Awesome. Cool. Well, I want to, you do so much, Rob. We need to move on. Yes. We can't, people can't devote like a full day to listening to us <laughs> talk about everything you're doing. Uh, okay. Let's take, take Midwest Con. Uh, next, I'm really excited about this. Tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so Midwest Con is really it's a it's as as I said, creating the South by Southwest of the Midwest. So South by Southwest, most of you probably know, but it's it's a huge cultural and technology conference that I think helped revolutionize and kind of really uh, drew more people into Austin. Uh, what we want to do is really. Uh, take that kind of same concept because we have a lot of great assets within the Midwest. Uh, yes, know, we do. We do. We do. Right. Including Jennifer. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but we have a lot of great schools, right. As, as you know, last night is an example of that. You heard a lot of people that went to school, but didn't stay. So like, what if we were trying to do something to have at least a conference and an effort to say, okay, we have all these great assets. How do we make sure that more in entertainment, uh, more in gaming, uh, know about it and, some of those opportunities and some of that investment is made in these areas and not just uh, in the in the coast because a lot of them we know still most of the money is there but I, I believe if people see some of the things going on you know within Cincinnati we I'm gonna brag on Cincinnati we have you know the we have the number of like I think one to five uh, uh, music school in the world that's Sarah Jessica Parker many people came out of there people may not know. Uh, we have like the number five design school. We're <clears throat> uh, over a billion dollar research school. Of course, you have Ohio State, which is not very far from us, an hour and a half. You have a lot of things that are going on in this area. You have Intel that just made a multi-billion dollar investment in a huge chip plant. So there's a lot going on in these areas, sure. right, that I believe if people understood and saw the opportunity, we would have more investment, and they will see the creative talent that they can invest in here. So what's the format of the conference? So the format of the conference is uh, we focus on art, tech, and culture. We're going to have day, day one is going to be actually at the University of Cincinnati Digital Futures building, which is a building that was literally just built about six months ago. And the whole concept is really using the, uh, the power of research and innovation together to help businesses solve problems. And it focuses on social impact. It's a 100,000 square foot, over 100,000 square foot building. So we're going to do a curated demo and tour and walkthrough for the first, I think, 200 people that are, uh, that become, uh, that register for the conference. So we're going to have a very curated experience for people because most conferences turn into, you just listen, you go on stage. I think this conference has done a better job of curating. Our goal is to curate the experience to make sure that when people are coming, like gamers will get a chance to connect with other gamers or developers. VCs will know about how to connect with other VCs and others. Uh, and those who are interested, if you're interested in AI, there'll be a track for you and we'll make sure that you have a curated experience. Because I, I think that's what's missing at the quote unquote bigger conferences. People go there 
and the real opportunities usually take place outside of the conference. Ours is, okay, we want to make sure that within the conference, you have a curated experience and being in the Midwest and the fact that we, I think, are more hungry for opportunity than others out in the coast, you're going to get a better, I think, and a more intentional experience. Cool. What's day two like? What's that? Didn't you say that was day one? Oh, yes. That's day one. Day two will be Day two will be more like a full conference, but one difference that we do is we like to, we believe in having an immersive experience. And what we mean by that is like when you come, people will, it's one thing to under, to hear about digital collectibles or NFTs, but everybody there will say, well, I'll have a session. And then people will, we will literally have an airdrop, which means everybody there, if they just go uh, check their emails, they'll be able to click. And suddenly they see how easy it is to have a digital collectible. Being will able, I get a digital collectible you will. if I come? Everybody will. Everybody will. And we'll, we'll show the process how easy it is. So I believe the best way to educate people is actually to entertain and immerse. So everything that we're doing is about uh, actual tangible things you can take away with you and, and, and learn and participate in with with the group and with the actual So uh, who presenters. should go? Is it just professionals in these fields or is it like open to the public? So I would say it is open to the public. I would say people that are interested in, that are, that are, that are definitely interested in the creative economy should go. People that are in tech, gaming, that, care, that, that are interested in learning about AI should go. Folks that actually care about the future of marketing and storytelling, we have, uh, they should go too. Uh, so we are really focused on helping the builders and the creators of the new creative economy build. And, and I believe that the creative economy is actually the biggest opportunity that we're going to have. So everything that I've talked about is really focused in those areas. Cool. Is this is this event put on by your company or is it a consortium or it's put on by it's put on by Disrupt Art, but we have partners such as the University of Cincinnati and others that are helping. Cool. Sounds great. How many years have you been doing it? This is year two. Oh, hey. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, cool. Okay. So that's and when are the dates on that? The dates are August eighteenth and nineteenth. And you can go to midwestcon.live to get more information. Okay, cool. And what's Cincinnati like that time of year? Cincinnati's great. It's uh, walkable. It's usually not overly hot. So it's usually- I'm asking for my coastal friends who are okay. like, I can't stand the cold. Oh, no. It'll be no, fine. No, I'll put it this way. We're, on, we're in L.A. right now. It's much warmer in Cincinnati than it is right now yeah. here. It's freezing here. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, let's talk about the last thing you're doing, disruption yes. now. Yeah, so Disruption Now is my podcast, and as you can tell, I love to have conversation and, and, and talk, and I love to hear other stories about how they've, not only how they how they have achieved, it's, I believe it's more important to tell me where they failed, mm. because you can get lucky with success, and people overvalue, I think, uh, success in that, oh, well, that person is successful, so we got to listen to everything they say. Rob, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. What's your biggest failure? Ooh, what is my biggest failure? And what did you learn from it? My biggest failure was uh, losing the uh, treasurer's race. Mm. Uh, that was that was that was my biggest failure because I believe I did everything in my power to win, uh, and believed I was going to win. And after I lost. I went through a, a bit of an identity crisis, mm. really. And w- what I learned is from that was very important, I think, for myself. It, it's, and it's this. 
you don't measure yourself by what you're doing. And I always measure myself as, okay, I am a public servant. I am doing, or I'm going to be in office. If I didn't get that, I wasn't successful in obtaining my goal. It's better to position yourself in values you believe in, right? I'm a person that wants to serve and have impact. And as long as I'm doing that, I'm satisfied. But if you put yourself, if you tie your your worth or your value or your identity to an actual profession, it's it, 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 it's harder on you, right? You see this with athletes and many others. If you tie yourself to that, when it ends, people have a crisis. And so that's the most important lesson I learned from that failure. That's a good one. I think it's one that most of us kind of at this stage in our career get to eventually. Yeah. Because I think so much when you're like, especially I would say in your 20s, when you're just trying to start your career yes. and trying to suddenly you're trying on these corporate or, you know, work identities, you can get so tied up into, I, I want to be this and it's yep. so hard. I can't be that. Yep. Um, I think it takes a real discipline and practice to really like shift, um, shift your internal monologue to being, uh, really rooted in who you are being yes. rather than what you do. Yes. And, and it's... Because I, that is something that's immediate and that, honestly, you have control over. You don't have control over people's votes. No. You don't have control over your promotion or nope. your job or, you know, but you can control who you are minute to minute, moment to moment. It's the only thing you can control. And that's that's part of that's part of the lesson. And if you control that, everything else tends to take care of itself. But if you get paralyzed by not reaching that goal that you thought def- defined who you were, it, it becomes a problem because then you have an identity crisis. Right. And if you don't know who you are or your or what you're doing, that can spiral to create a lot of other problems for yourself. I agree. I think part of it. I think a lot about the game industry and why it's become so popular. Why now? Why, why games? You got a thought Uh, on that? What? What's your thought on that? I have thoughts about that. I think about, um, well, first of all, the technology is now we can make very cool games. I mean, Pong was cool at the time, but no longer Pong. I think it's, it's the intersection of technology, but as I observe, I mean, we talked last night, we both have teenagers and, I'm sure our parents thought we were so different, but I now, um, with, with my teenagers see how different they are. And part of what's so different is they grew up with every piece of information on their fingertips. Yep. Um, you know, we had to go to school to learn from wise people and to get even access to textbooks that we could then read and learn from. Whereas my kids since their birth have just been Googling what they're interested in. What do you want to know? I don't know. I'll Google it. I'll Google it. I'll Google it. I'll Google it. So I feel like just acquiring, like when we had to acquire information, you have to, you had to go to a library. You had to learn how to use a card catalog. Yes. You need to like learn how to navigate. Like it was a process just to learn. Now it's like just Googling is not a process. So now I feel like this next generation is craving doing they're craving doing. They could get any information anytime they want. 
any way they want, multiple sources. And sure, we have to teach them to be like good consumers of information yeah. and be able to identify that's very that's important. <laughs> that's important. So I'm saying that is a skill. But then they want to do, they want to apply, they want to make, they want to, and I think games, you know, um, kind of create this kind of puzzle box. Like they give you a framework to be and do in that is like really unique. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, and I keep saying we were kind of the same age, Rob and I, just to let you know, like we grew up and when we were kids, we had adventures. We got on our bikes. We like yeah. rode in the neighborhood. We, I don't know, we would go to the railroads and collect beer bottles to All make money, to buy penny candy. Like looking back, like the types of adventures we had seems huge compared to my kids' adventures. No, they have no adventures now. They have no adventures. Like their adventure was asking their mom to call a friend to with mother, mother to make a play date and then being walked over with like a specific time. Yep. And, you know, so I really think the other thing with games is this yearning for adventure. There's like, no question. And, and to, to feel empowered, I know during the pandemic, you know, suddenly a lot of my parent friends were alarmed and concerned about how much time their kids were playing games. Sure. And I just, you know, I believe we all have bodies and we have to move them. I also felt during the pandemic where all of your choices were removed from you all the time, like games suddenly made you feel you know, in your life, you were feeling scared of this disease sure. and limited. And suddenly in games, you could be a hero having adventures, yeah. doing things with your friends, chatting. So that's my take of about why now games. Yeah. My sad part is I see the value of it. I also wish for this generation and future generations to have more real world adventures. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's going to be on the parents to make sure that that happens. And for I know. Them well, to, why we didn't do it more. Yeah. I mean, I took my kids camping every year. Yeah. It's, it's difficult, right? I, I think gaming has a lot of upsides. It, it's, you know, they are now, this generation is able to be connected in a way that was not possible. If we had a friend that was, and if you were in Cincinnati and the other friend was in L.A., it would be nearly impossible to maintain a, a, a strong relationship. That's possible now. Thanks to gaming, thanks to social media, uh, you know, kids communicate over Discord while playing games. So I also tell parents you can't remove your kids from this because it's like you're removing them from their, their social connection. So it's, that's not smart. We do have to train our kids, however, because every game is not trained for social impact. Many games are almost becoming mini casinos, right? They're, they know the triggers to how to keep you there and for, so you don't leave. And kids, because even adults aren't sophisticated enough to understand it. So kids, let alone, are not. So these are things as we, it's so important to have games that are about social impact and, and the work you're doing because it's using the tools that kids like and helping them go in a different direction and empower themselves. So I think that I hope the future of gaming does the type of things you guys are talking about, as well as maybe uh, encourage people to do things in the quote unquote physical real world, too. And that's my hope, because I think the greatest part of our technology, what it should always do, this goes for artificial intelligence and this goes for the digital realm. It should enhance the human experience.
the digital should enhance the physical. That's my hope for what Web3 does and AI. If we're not careful, though, instead of having augmented intelligence where humans work and interactive and we're interactive, we can have complete artificial intelligence right. where the algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves. I think that future is coming. We have to decide what's the balance in that. And these are questions that we have to continue to ask ourselves. And, uh, but gaming is not going away. It's only going to accelerate. I'm a gamer. I love gaming, but I also know that games are much different from when I grew up. I was a Street Fighter game head, right? <laughs> and uh, I would sit there and play for hours in the arcade. I would go home and get the newest games on Nintendo and all that stuff, and I would play it. But it had a beginning and an end. The games now are in an endless cycle of no ending, and it becomes more like a casino. So those are the things we have to just be aware of and think about you know, as parents, as gamers, and as people that care about society. We're going to wrap up. Yes. I have one final question for yes. you. Right now, today, what is your wish for the world? My wish for the world is to become more aware of how you can improve the world and become self-aware about what you can do to improve it. We like to, we hope that we don't have any type of prejudice. We all do though. We hope that we're all completely rational. Everyone is irrational. I hope the world seeks to become more self-aware and looks at things even when it's not comfortable. That's the only way we can have change. I share that wish. Let's do it. Thanks Rob for being with me today. Thank you. And we're gonna have you on Disruption Now podcast too. Coming soon. Got it. Coming soon. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.